Hello and welcome to episode 49 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria and your host. Today my guest is Wilhelm Perschen, who some of you may recall from episode 45, I think, where we talked about some ideas of gifts for Christmas. Wilhelm was really hoping he had a stocking stuffed with marmalade. So hi Wilhelm, how's it going? Thank you. It's uh, great to be here. Lots of marmalade for Christmas? Uh, no marmalade at all. Oh, dear. I, lots of chocolates, though. Okay. So it evens out. Hopefully you got some gift certificates for a marmalade shop so you can buy <laughs> marmalade. <laughs> so for those that uh, aren't familiar with your uh, your background, Wilhelm is the, uh, the writer of uh, Daughters of Verona, which you can check out. Oh, where can they check that out, Wilhelm? They can find it via Indie Press Revolution these days. Right, sure. And I have a website as well. Maybe we can put that in the show notes. It's uh, wilhelmsgames.wordpress.com. I shall do that without hesitation. So to get to know you a little better before we crack on with the Inside the Roleplay Studio questions, how long have you been a role player? Oh, 25 years, 20 years, something like that. Uh, the early years are a bit hazy, but something like that. All right, so what did you get started with? Um, absolute first session was a systemless game. Right. Some friends had been playing with their brothers, and they brought back the idea to school that we should, we should play a game like this, but they didn't bring any dice or character sheets or anything, so we just preformed the whole session. But then we uh, got into a Swedish fantasy game called Drakar och Demoner, which uses the same rules as uh, Call of Cthulhu. Right. So it's a basic role-playing system, generic fantasy. I see. And and so um, did that first experience with role-playing, where you had a systemless story game, I guess, did that inform your, um, your designs and, and role-playing, your ideas about role-playing later on, or did you go quickly to systems as soon as they were available? Well... Um... In the 90s, at least in Sweden, there was this this wave of playing. It became in fashion to play systemless games. Right. And when that came, I felt like, well, I've already done this. We did this in the 80s. Mm. So I have done this already. I, I, I think I'll stick to games with systems and so on. Mm-hmm. And... Now, in the last decade, I'm slowly drifting back towards playing systemless or very rules-light games. Mm. Comes goes, and I shift back and forth in my preferences. Sure, sure. And can you think of, um, off the top of your head, or whether you can sort of give us a potted summary, but the differences that you perceive there are, or maybe have experienced there are, between role-playing in Scandinavian countries? I know Jason Morningstar's talked a lot about games from there. It seems to be... Um, seems to quite enjoy. There's also um, Epidai Ravishol was talking about attending a, a convention there, and it seemed like there was rather a different flavour. Can you talk to that? Um, well, Scandinavia is bigger than you think. <laughs> oh, <laughs> sure. At least uh, gaming culture-wise, because uh, the Finns, of course, uh, speak Finnish, and they have lots of translated games from English to Finnish. But there's almost a watertight divider between Finnish gaming culture and Swedish gaming culture. Sure. And Norwegian uh, gaming culture? 
the Norwegian gaming culture, at least back in the 80s, came out of Dungeons and Dragons. Okay, sure. Uh, and as I said, the Swedish, well, of course, we played Dungeons and Dragons in Sweden as well, but most gamers played Swedish language games based on basic role play. Hmm. Does Denmark uh, get lumped in there as well? Um, I don't want to speak too much about the Danish scene because I don't have much grasp on it, actually. Do they do they count as being Scandinavian? Uh, let's see. You know, they're not part of the Scandic mountain range, are uh, they? The, well, I don't know. You're telling me here. It, it covers Sweden, Norway, and Finland. Okay, like so, so it's part of Nordic countries as well. At oh, least. okay. All right, sure, sure. So, um, the language barrier then is that one of the main divides in terms of the gaming culture? Then, like, it would be just a language barrier. Um, it could be. Swedes in general are not very fond of taking to uh, Norwegian or Danish uh, to that level that Norwegians and Danes can understand Swedish. Right. Uh, so it's sort of a one-way barrier there. Right, I see. And in Finland, they teach Swedish in schools, or at least they did, but almost no Swedes learn to speak Finnish. Right. So it's sort of a one-way barrier there as well. Right. So if you're traveling to a Scandinavian country um, or Nordic country, um, then learning Swedish would be a, a, is pretty... Um, at least to some extent, is universal for most people? Um, if you speak Swedish, uh, Norwegians and Danes will understand you. All right, okay. Uh, some some Finns will, but uh, you'll manage just fine with English all, the, all over there. Right, I right, see. Okay, fair enough. So tell me more about then the role-playing divide. Like, what, How would you characterize Finnish gaming? Um, I don't know, really. Uh, <laughs> I, in, the, in, the, in the back... Uh, uh, in the old days, the Finnish games were many. Uh, there were many translated games from right. from English into Finnish. Right. Uh, I don't think they had such a large domestic industry. Right. Uh, the Swedish scene was entirely dominated by Swedish games in the eighties and well, early nineties as well. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, this company called uh, Target Games, Eventyrspel, they mm-hmm. did Mutant Chronicles, which was translated into English as right. well. You right. might have heard of it. Mm. Uh, and Cult, right. horror game. Yes. Uh, those were games that spread out of Sweden. And since we didn't come out of this Dungeons and Dragons background, uh, games with level-based character advancement were seen as a bit strange. Right, okay. <laughs> uh, and and it's, it's so uh, so much uh, that's part of the gaming culture that comes out of Dungeons & Dragons in the US and perhaps uh, uh, Britain as well mm. uh, that we don't have. Of course, right. some people play Dungeons & Dragons, some people play Dungeons & Dragons, but it's... Uh, it didn't influence and dominate the scene in the way that it did in the English-speaking world. Right. And what about the uh, Norwegians then? Uh, well, you should get some Norwegian game designers to to give you the whole truth here. But uh, <laughs> uh, 
Uh, Dungeons and Dragons was very popular there uh, in the 80s. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons and the Swedish Drakar och Demoner competed on the Norwegian scene and Dungeons and Dragons won. It was a battle of attrition, two role-playing systems against each other and Dungeons and Dragons won. Something like that. Now, um, whenever I hear about the Wright brothers, um, you can't sort of uh, read about them without um, reading about the various other people that claim to have flown first. Now, I wasn't around to, to watch it all, but I know for um, for myself that there's a chap by the name of Richard Pierce who was a farmer in, um, in New Zealand, uh, and there's records of him having flown with powered flight before the Wright Brothers. You can check it out, Richard Pierce, on wikipedia.com. Now, um, everybody's got a story, or every country has got a story like that. Um, now, I don't want to ask about flight in Sweden, although please feel free to inform us of any Swedish um, aviators, but we tend to have, well, I mean, I know I do, I've got a, um, a, a, a sort of a Dungeons & Dragons, Gary Gygax, Dave Arneson sort of centric view of where role-playing started, but I wonder whether there's any sort of similar types of stories as there are about who invented flight first to who invented role-playing first, the first role-playing games. Are there, is there any suggestion that there were role-playing games, perhaps that you're aware of, at least from... Um, Nordic countries um, that predate Dungeons and Dragons? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, Dungeons and Dragons made its first footprints in Sweden in 76 or 77. Right. And the idea of uh, playing role playing games, of course, became very popular. But uh, first onto the market, well, at least with any bigger success, were uh, this uh, Drakar och Demoner. Right. right. So the gaming culture in Sweden, um, at least for you, began with story games, but but Dungeons and Dragons and the name of the game that I I cannot name. It's, it's quite like it's a little bit like Voldemort, I suppose, except for it's not dangerous to say. It's just that I can't say it. Um, and then uh, through the nineties, there was a switch back in the general role playing public to diceless sort of story games. But at that point, you stuck with systemless. Uh, sorry, you stuck with uh, your, your dice games. And then as uh, time's gone by, what's the general gaming culture like there now? Is it as uh, diverse as it is in in uh, North America and uh, the Western world? Or is it, uh, is it does it still fluctuate back and forth a little bit? Um, I, I think most gaming styles have been there all, all the time. Just uh, the style that's in the spotlight shifts. Mm. Uh, but uh, the gaming scene here is quite diverse. Right. Uh, there's the store gamers. There are still the freeform systemless gamers. We have uh, the Nordic LARP tradition. Mm. That I'm sure someone else can tell you more about since I'm not a LARPer. Right. And uh, then there are those who play the traditional style, Dungeons and Dragons, uh, Drakar och Demoner, and uh, all, all those kind of well, I, I like to call them traditional games, but uh, you, you know what I'm talking about. Yes, sure. dice and skill rolls. And, mm. uh, Absolutely. Game, a game master, a dungeon master. Sure. Referee. One of the, the things that uh, that Jason Morningstar and also Epidai Ravishol talked about um, was the, the Nordic LARPsy. Now, you've said you're not a LARPer, but um, I wonder whether you've been to many um, sort of Nordic... Uh, conventions and how they may differ from North American ones. There are some uh, some major things that I I think is almost always true. Then, 
Sure. Uh, an American convention is held at a hotel or at a convention center, mm-hmm. whereas a Swedish convention, the guys who are having this convention, they, they borrow a school from the municipality. All right, okay. Then you get a whole classroom for yourself. All right, right I've on. seen these pictures from American conventions with huge halls, with 50 tables and a game master at every table, and they're shouting to uh, make themselves heard at their own table. Yes. If you're going to play a game, well, you've got a classroom for yourself. That's uh, right, yeah. <laughs> you can sit by at the desks, or you can move about the room mm. and uh, sort of semi-LARP if you want to. Mm. Uh, it gives other possibilities. Yes. Oh, yeah, having a lot more a more space certainly, um, like you say, gives possibilities and not having to shout would be ideal. Um, so does that then mean, though, that the conventions tend to have fewer participants? Uh, it's a smaller country. Uh, a big convention here has a thousand and a half participants. Right. So that must be a pretty uh, big school. Yeah, and a small-scale convention is maybe a hundred. Right. Right. Fair enough. With schools being happy to host um, role-playing conventions, um, what's the general perception of role-playing in um, in Sweden? Because I know that there are a lot of there's still a lot of stigma around for for role-playing, certainly getting less so as time's gone by, but how was it accepted by the public? Uh, There were some resistance to role-playing in the 80s from the Christian right, and there were some some crimes, maybe uh, murders and suicides, and they were attributed to to role-playing in the 80s then. Mm -hmm. Uh, These days, things are different. Uh, LARP is popular and if you say I'm a role player people will assume that you're a LARPer oh, right. and we have children's programming on the TV where they LARP oh is that right? <laughs> yeah uh, so people almost everyone have a vague idea that oh okay you're a role player sort of something like that oh good for you right, uh, sure. it's not a big deal right so you would say that the ratio of LARPers to role players, you'd say that, that it was actually LARP, LARPing has more participants than role playing, or is it just that it's it's a high profile? I think it's a profile question, actually. Right. Then, uh, of course, there's a lot of overlap. There are many LARPers of who course. play LARP games as well. Okay. So that's a quick primer i guess for people who are interested in uh, role playing in in sweden and and how perhaps it's perceived differently and some other snippets may come up as we go along but um so you started with um dungeons and dragons and drock karok demona is that have i done it right this time oh almost dropped up demona <laughs> oh Shame on me. Um, it's, it's just <laughs> dragons and demons. It's, so. uh, <laughs> there you go then. Um, and so you, um, when everybody else was playing um, uh, diceless games, you uh, stuck with your your system games. And then uh, what did you play sort of in the late 90s and then into the 2000s? Uh, we played Vampire. Right. A lot, a lot of Vampire. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a Swedish fantasy game called Eon, which has, uh, well, rules of the similar complexity to Rollmaster, and it's hugely popular. Right. Uh, and I played some of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I played lots of Twilight 2000. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, so, uh, that's not a very common game for Swedes to like, but I, I played it a lot in the late 90s. Hmm. Well, the the setting, is the setting in Europe? It's like war in Europe, right? Like I, I, I played it, but I can't remember if it was Eurocentric in terms of the setting or whether it was North America. I can't... Uh, the the setting material assumed that you were American soldiers uh, stranded in Poland at the right. That's right. Uh, right. Not at the end of the world, but war, but when people didn't have the strength to fight anymore. Mm, mm. Yes, um, and I always use that as an example of a rules-heavy game. But it's been a long. I never played it that much, so perhaps it was a case of me not being familiar enough with it to sort of move through the game quickly. But um, would you characterize it, Twilight 2000 as being a rules-heavy game? Well, if you actually follow all the rules, yes, it's on the heavier side, but uh, I came from the background of Drakkar och Demoner, and I, we assumed that rules should work in a way, and then we sort of glanced through the rule book. I was pretty young when I learned this game. I didn't speak very good English. Mm-hmm. And I looked at the tables, and I looked at the weapon charts, and I thought, well, I assume the game works like this, so let's play it like that. Sure. And now that I have later actually sat down with the rules, I find that we didn't quite play it as written. Right. At all as written. We played some other game in that setting. Sure. But we had a good time. Oh, that's the same. That's the thing. And if you're having a good time, then you're winning. So uh, what do you play now? Um, I play mostly GM-less story games. Okay. Zombie Cinema by Erotovinen is a favorite we played uh, uh, Gregor Vuga's Sagas of the Icelanders right. last week. Yes. And how did you find that? Uh, we were seven at the table. Right. Uh, it was a bit too many. It, it seemed like an interesting game. I'd love to return to it, but that particular session wasn't very good. Right, right. Due to the number of participants. Yes, that's the thing, isn't it? You, uh, I think that... And please feel free to uh, to argue here, but my, I feel like uh, story games tend to attract a certain type of uh, gamer, and those gamers tend to be a lot more autonomous. Um, they're less, they're more interested in in sharing and, and telling the story rather than um, interacting with the the story that's sort of being told to them. And they're it's like a problem that they're solving, more of a Dungeons and Dragons type thing. Now. Um, that may not necessarily, that's not universally true, but along with that desire to, you know, be involved in the story and, and, and tell part of the story, I think that as soon as you've got over a certain number of people and a certain number of a certain type of person, then like you say for your um, Sagas of the Icelanders, you know, that can actually diminish the enjoyment available um, overall. And has that been your experience, or do you think that particular game... Uh, yes, uh, I think you're right there. Uh, it makes sense. Uh, and uh, Of course, there are story games that actually fit very well for a larger group, like five players, maybe six players. Right. Uh, and there are traditional games that I, I prefer to play with a much smaller group. The, the higher the rules complexity, the smaller the group. Yes, yeah. And, of course, I play my own games uh, a lot. Oh, yeah. uh, I, I wrote them to be, because I, I saw a lack and I wanted I want a game like this, and I wrote a game like that. So I play my own games right. quite a lot. And since I do some game design, I often play test games on my 
unfortunate friends <laughs> who for years have seen different iterations of the of the same setting and the same rules and I, I, I we must play again i have changed this rule we must see what happens and mm, so on sure it's a lot of play testing as well yeah it's good to have that sort of cluster of people that are prepared to um you know are prepared to humor you when you're writing a game and to you know be prepared to change their perceptions of what they can and can't do based upon rule changes and stuff like that. that's really an invaluable resource for for any game designer to um any game designer to have so so you've got uh, sisters of verona out at the moment but are there any other games that you've sort of produced or in the, in the process of producing um a few years ago, I released a game called Wild the World Ends, right? which is a story game about the end of the world. Right. And last year, I produced a time travel hack for that called A State of Mind. Right. Uh, so I've been playing those two quite a lot, more than I've been playing The Daughters of Verona lately, because The Daughters of Verona was sort of finished after I've done the game, Jeff. Hmm. And so I played it a lot, but not quite as much as I've played my my other games that I've been hacking. Sure. And where can people get a hold of those games? Uh, Wilhelmsgames.wordpress.com. Right. And I have links there because they're spread out all over the place. I I did my first games at Lulu. Right. So I have those there. And the supplements are free downloads from my blog. And Dots of Rona you get through Indie Press Revolution because Lulu doesn't do card games. Right, right. Now, you mentioned Game Chef. Um, now, I've had a sort of like looked sideways at Game Chef a couple of times but never actually participated. Uh, can you tell the people a little bit about um, Game Chef? Uh, well, it's a yearly event where uh, there's a theme... And you get a week to write a game based on that theme. Mm. And then there's some sort of judging competition element to it in the end where a winner is declared. But mostly everyone who actually produces a game in a week is a winner. And I didn't participate this year. uh, Well, last year now. It's January. Uh, Two years ago, it was uh, Shakespeare. Right. And maybe 50 or 60 Shakespeare-themed games came out that year, and a couple of them, uh, the Dots of Verona included, has then been polished and produced with high production values and released as commercial games. Right. And is that pretty standard for the game shift, like about, you know, five, sort of 2% or 5% of them actually go on to to become uh, games, or are there any other big... Well, some, some something like that. Uh, a couple of a handful of games every year uh, are developed into uh, some higher state of polish and released as commercial games. Hold on. And so, do you have the address for uh, that for GameChef? Uh, I would say it's gamechef.wordpress.com. Okie dokes. And in fact, you're exactly right. I've just gone ahead and looked it up. So yes, gamechef.wordpress.com. It looks like it goes in about May. Yeah, around that time. And I've spoken about it before, but I'd be interested to get your take on it as well. I find that um, a situation like that where some of the elements are set in place, um, I find that makes it very fertile uh, for my imagination to uh, 
to develop something from it. Having a, a vacuum to design in, I find, is, is diff- more difficult, but having a few elements set makes it a little bit easier. Do, do you find that? Uh, absolutely. And I see it especially, uh, well, uh, when introducing beginners to, to gaming. And if you take them, uh, you're going to make a character, and you can be anything, mm. and they'll look like you, like deers in, in the headlights. Mm. But if, all right, you are, this is a Western game. We're playing sort of uh, spaghetti Western, uh, Clint Eastwood style cowboy movie here. Mm. And they, the wheel starts turning, well, maybe I want to play this kind of uh, gunfighter. Mm. So by introducing some kind of restrictions, you read creativity. Absolutely. Right. Okay, so what's your favorite book or supplement? Um, other than anything that you've written, or uh, Victoria, of course, there's something that you just sort of go back to and you always get enjoyment from, even if it's, it's not something you necessarily play. Um, there's this game, uh, rather uh, a manual for how to play, uh, called Play Unsafe. Right. Have you heard about that? I haven't. No, tell me about it. Uh, it's... Uh... I have to check who who wrote it. I'm about to say Graham Wormsley, but I could be lying here. So let's check it <laughs> just to make sure <laughs> the way we attribute tri- the uh, the right person um, yeah. with, with writing it. Yes. Um, and what is it about that particularly that you like? I mean, the title seems to give a, a um, seems to give away the contents. But uh, is there something in particular that you enjoy about that book? Is it the way it's written or? Um. It's sort of a shortcut into a different playstyle, right? Uh, if you've been playing maybe maybe Dungeons and Dragons, then just for and you say say, uh, well, I, I used to love role playing. I don't love role playing anymore. It has gotten stale somehow. Sure. I I, I want to to kickstart the hobby again. I I mm. want to find the enthusiasm and fun again. Right. Uh, Play Unsafe contains another way of playing than the traditional Dungeon Bash. All right. Uh, and it explains how to do that. Right. And uh, it gives pointers and advice that you can, well, just take a few of those techniques and bring them into your ordinary game, and it will change a bit, and maybe you'll like it more. Right, it is Graham Walmsley that wrote uh, Play Unsafe. I just uh, verified that here. So does it contain uh, resolutions that are more sort of uh, story-based? Is that what it does, or does it talk about how you can adapt the rules that currently exist? Uh, There's no rules mechanics at all in in that game. It's uh, ways of thinking and uh, what to think about, the stances you can have when you play that you can apply to your existing games, and it will uh, well, show you other ways to play. Right. If, if you definitely want a, a ready game-made game with that, well, teaches you similar things, you should look at Itras Bu, right. which was very recently released in English translation. Yes. Yeah, it's think- all over Google Plus right now. Yes, yeah. Jason Morningstar was speaking very highly of that. Um, also, and he, he recommended it for uh, for Christmas for people this for this year as well. So, so check out Teachers B as well. Um, so, if you could cause one game or supplement to cease to exist, uh, what would it be? And this doesn't mean that uh, you know you want to um, get rid of a game because you don't like the author or because you think that it's terrible, but but perhaps something about 
a style of game that uh, that just rubs you up the wrong way or something random that's happened in association with a game that's that means you can't go back to it? I would be very intrigued to see what the gaming scene looked like if American gaming sprouted out of Traveller instead of Dungeons & Dragons. Oh, yes. Awesome. So, uh, <clears throat> go ahead. Uh, because it's... It has this uh, a very different perspective on what you're supposed to be doing while you're all playing. All right. Uh, it does away with levels uh, and so on. Uh, I, I like Dungeons and Dragons. We play old school at my mm-hmm. table sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but it would have been very interesting to see what would have happened if uh, Traveler was the first game and everything came out of that. Mm. So, in your mind's eye, uh, how would that look? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> no idea. That's what makes it so so exciting. I can't uh, envision it because even though those games are not that far apart when it comes to age, they are so very different. Mm. Interestingly enough, or coincidentally might be better, um, my... Um, my game that I would cause to cease to exist would, in fact, be uh, be travel because of the, the the fact that that was the first game that I played and my uh, my character died during character generation. But, but <laughs> putting it, <Fast. laughs> it's right. But but putting it, um, but thinking about it in those terms, um, you're absolutely right. That different perspective on on character would have, have certainly uh, would actually have created something different. So yeah, I'll have to ponder on that and see if I can come up with some insightful I, comment. I looked at the. I read the Traveller rulebook uh, a year ago, end to end. Actually, not not just looked at it, but read every single word. Right. And there's mention of GMless play in that book. Is that right? Yeah. And the, the, it's just a sentence. And uh, there, and you can of course play this game uh, without the referee. I don't think that's the way that most people played it. No. Uh, certainly, we didn't uh, back in the day, but. It's still interesting that the thought was there in, in this very early game. Mm. Uh, yeah, you, of course, you can make characters and go adventuring, and there's no one who's the referee. You just make things up as you, as you go. Right. Uh, maybe we would have had the story gaming revolution earlier, or maybe it would have been not wouldn't have been a revolution mm. since that playstyle would be more prevalent. In, uh, in gaming right so you're kind of like a role-playing archaeologist here Wilhelm you're reminding us of all of the things that have gone before in uh, gaming culture <clears throat> so like Indiana Jones for role players so <laughs> if, uh, <laughs> if you could only be a player or a GM which would you choose um, oh, we're ruling out the GM-less games here we are talking sure. traditional I will be a player uh, our players and a GM sure uh, I would be a GM right uh, because I uh, I like telling stories and it's harder to play a story uh, tell a story from a player chair than the GM chair. Mm. That's that's certainly true, and um, I think almost universally, um, the game designers that I've had on the show have been um, have chosen to be GMs, and I think that probably that's you know as it as it should be uh do you find though that when you are a player a being a designer and having sort of your design hat on do you find it's difficult to um to switch off really wanting the story to go in a certain way and just sort of be carried along uh absolutely 
uh, I have often been in games and thought that, well, uh, now, no, no, GM, stop. You, you, you missed the, the important turning point in the plot here. You, we, <laughs> let's do this again. And um, I prefer to play games where, well, even if there is a GM that uh, the players are expected to make, uh, give a more input on the story along the way. Mm. Uh, because I these days I get rather frustrated just just controlling my my PC in a game. Mm. I, I want to do more, and I want everyone at the table to do more. Right. Yeah, that's the that's the thing, isn't it? When when you're in a GM a system with a GM and, and players, I mean, you can always adjust it as you go along. But the opportunity, or at least the perceived opportunities that you see as a as a player and for things that don't happen, um, if there's no sort of avenue for you to pursue those, it can sometimes leave you feeling unfulfilled. Um, but I think probably um, certain, you know, like switching that off in your head, I think is or at least for me anyway, is impossible. Once you once you see it that way, it's hard to see it hard to see it another way. And, and have you found that? any techniques you can apply so that that doesn't happen so you stay immersed in the story that's being told rather than the story that you want to be told no (laughs) (laughs) yeah Uh, i've tried i played in in that kind of uh games last year i played uh, a song of ice and fire role-playing game right yeah by uh, schwab yeah and it was played in the traditional style uh with a with a gm and players who controlled their characters Mm mm-hmm and I was uh, tearing my hair. Uh, I, I left the group after a few sessions because I couldn't. I couldn't adjust anymore. I am too uh, fixed up with this. Everyone is a GM, right? Right. And and so, how do you find other role players in uh, in Sweden? Like, is there any kind of a sort of a nexus for finding other groups? Because leaving a group after a few sessions, like if I left my group after a few sessions of a game that I didn't particularly like, then. Um, I would find it really difficult to gather up a, a group of role players again. But is there a is because it's quite widely accepted? Is finding other groups easier? Um, well, uh, for me, there's two big parts in this. Uh, first, we have a very good uh, forum online for Swedish role players. Right. Not every Swedish role player is a member of that forum, but very many people are. If I move somewhere in Sweden, I will ask on that forum and I will have a new group within a few hours. Right. And also, I I live in a university town. Right. And that means there are lots of students uh, and lots of students bring lots of role players. So there are many groups going in my vicinity. Right. And they're not that hard to find. So if I I leave one group, I can move to the next. And since I've been living here for, well, 15 years now, I have connections. Right. I I know people in places. Right. I can find games. (laughs) (laughs) I know know somebody. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, And I find that the internet has expanded this knowing people in places mm. uh, uh, a friend of a friend wanted to try role-playing right and uh, so she uh, asked my girlfriend uh, right. I-, I want to try role-playing and what should i do right and she said well i lost my boyfriend she came to me and asked where 
No, my, my girlfriend wants, uh, not my girlfriend, my friend wants to try role-playing games. Right. Oh, of course, I will hook her up. Where is she? In Bern, in Switzerland. Right. Uh, no problem. <laughs> I know a gamer in Bern, in Switzerland. You, right. I'll get a game next week. Oh, sure. Right, it sounds uh, like it's much oh. more tight-knit tight knit there, for sure. Uh, so, uh, the internet, and especially Google+, Plus lately has shrunk the world. It's unbelievable how small the gaming scene is these days. Everyone knows everyone, and you can talk to gamers all over the place. Uh, the designers of all the games, everyone is there, and um, they invite conversation and discussion. Yes. Yeah, that's something that Google Plus definitely can hold its hand up for, at least for the role-playing community. I feel like we're extremely well served. It's a it's a very it's a good format um, for having those conversations. And like you say, um, it seems to me that um, the designers have really taken to it as a place to not only um, be accessible to people that are playing their games, but but also um, a Josh uh, Roby um, episode forty-seven. I uh, was talking about sort of crowdsourcing ideas for the uh, for the title of uh, of one of his games, and that also seems to be something that happens on on G plus. So at least from a gamer's perspective, G plus is is a big win um, is a big win for us. But do you use Facebook at all? I, I, I'm not on Facebook. <clears throat> well, there you go. Say no. To, say no to Facebook if you're a, if you're a, a role player. So we've sort of talked about this a little bit, but uh, let's go into it a little bit more depth. What's the perfect number of people to uh, to role play? Uh, what kind of game, or, or especially what game? Yes, uh, exactly. And if we're playing uh, Witch Quest, uh, we should be an odd number of players. If yes. we are playing uh, Graham Walmsley's A Taste for Murder, we should be five players, maybe four. Right. Uh, if we are playing uh, a rules-heavy uh, traditional game, we should be three people, a GM and two players. Right. So it all depends on on what game we're playing. Right. For you, though, like if you could choose a, your perfect sort of a setup, how many people would there be playing? Uh, what game are we playing? Uh, you're you're <laughs> playing uh, one of your games. One of my games. Okay. Which one of my games? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> I, I find that uh, beyond four players or for participants at the table yes uh, you have to take care that everyone can be involved right and if you are fewer than four for a game uh, you have to have focus all the time because there are so few people who speak that you have to uh, be there for every moment to participate yes so it, maybe four is uh, the best number but there are games that i would not like to play with four players but yeah, sure. Well played. Um, so how often do you role play and for how long? Uh, it comes to once every two weeks, something like that. Right. Uh, but then uh, that is including going to a convention and, and playing five sessions in a weekend. And right. then like a month of no gaming at all. So, But but it averages out to a gaming session every other every week. Right. And... Three hours is a good time to play. Right. Not, not not sitting at the table. I like sitting at the table and talking about the game or having a cup of tea or such like that for, for more. But actual play time, I think three hours is a good time. 
Right. If you play longer than that, people start losing interest or lose concentration. Right. And shorter than that, well, you don't get anywhere in the story. Right. Yep, but that's true. Okay, so before I um, before I get into my next question, what would you say the gender balance was in role playing in uh, in Sweden? Uh, back in the eighties, it was a very male dominated hobby. Right. Very much so. Uh, these days, things have changed. Vampire brought lots of women into the, the hobby. Right. Here as well as everywhere else. Hmm. And uh, then LARP. I think there's more female LARPers than male. I think it's like right. that. I'm not sure, but I, I think that. And and of course that leaves a mark on the on the tabletop gaming as well. Hmm. Uh, I don't want to give a, a number, but there are a lot of female gamers here right okay so should males play uh females then and, and vice versa the thrust of this question sort of is two-pronged i suppose one question is um sort of a broader question which is <clears throat> if you're going to role play you know should you be looking to play things that are really different to yourself and the second thing is you know are there um a, a boundaries in terms of what characters it is that you can play um if you're trying to be um i don't want to say politically correct but you know places that you things that you can and can't to do as a role player in terms of a character you can play um i believe in crossplay right that is girls playing boys and boys playing girls mm -hmm. uh i find that it uh usually yields rather interesting stories. Sure. Uh, of course, I'm uh, 35 now. Mm -hmm. uh, I play with adults. Yes. Uh, I don't remember much about my sessions from the early teens, but I would say that the female portraits in those sessions were not very flattering. Sure. Uh, but it comes with age, uh, I think, and... Of course, I don't. I don't want to force anyone to crossplay. If if you prefer playing just one gender, well, do that. Mm -hmm. But uh, I would never prevent anyone from crossplaying at my table. Right. And so, do you think that um, there is rule, uh, sorry, room in, in role playing for exploring stuff? Like, it's, can it be cathartic? Could be uh, for some, I guess. Uh, there's uh, all this wearing someone else's shoe for a while and seeing the world with new eyes that supposedly come out of gaming. I I'm too focused on the actual game to learn much, I think. Right. But uh, uh, I'm sure there are. There is uh, for some people to, to be able to try things in gaming before they actually are have gathered the strength to do it in real life. Right. Sure. And going back a little bit to uh, what you were saying previously about it being easy to get hold of other gaming groups and then sort of crossing that question over a little bit with this idea of, you know, playing different things and, and trying to be sensitive. Um, have you been a part of um, any 
gaming group where like people have become angry with each other or you know have thrown the towel partway through the the session and everybody's got into a big argument and gone home and never played together again or is that you know or have you had a situation where you've had to say look I don't want to play with you anymore but it's not just me it's actually you and we want you to uh to go have you had any of those experiences uh I've been thrown out of gaming groups yeah (laughs) (laughs) this sounds fascinating tell me about that unless it's too painful Uh uh no 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 it's fine we're we're, we're friends again okay good uh, no we were we were playing uh some world of darkness game right right and there there was a a clash i was a player and there was a clash with me and the game master about the the narrative mm-hmm. and it was made clear that it was i was not welcome to the next session <laughs> uh, <laughs> So you can take your stories and you can stay home next week. Tell your tell your own yeah, stories. Yeah, <laughs> so, so, something like that. Uh, and and we're 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 friends. And I didn't take it that hard when it happened either. Uh, sure. Uh, if if you're not having fun, something is wrong. And if I was 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 wrong at the, that table, well, well, we should fix that game. And if we could fix it by me leaving, well, fine, let's do that. Sure. <clears throat> I've played in in games where everyone uh where it didn't end well. I <laughs> uh, I find that that's usually due to people not trusting each other. Right. Uh because if I trust you as uh as a player even if you do something that seems rather nasty, uh I trust that you're doing it for for the good of all of us or the good of the story or whatever that you have good motivations for doing mm. acting in it. yeah oh for sure yeah that trust's uh, good find trust in each other and you'll have better games yeah oh absolutely yeah. that's um you have to assume that everybody knows what they're doing right you got to proceed from that perspective so that if something does come up you're like i don't really know where this is going it seems kind of nasty but i'm going to trust that, that person is taking it somewhere good then uh then yeah that's that's something that's worthwhile developing now if you have trust yeah, and maybe not for all games, but for some games you can actually stop. I I, I don't see where you're going with this. Uh, I find I'm a bit uneasy about this. Uh, are you sure you want to go there? Uh, why are you going there? And to stop stop the game and have a discussion about the game mm. and solve whatever issues you're having and then get back into the game and continue. Yes. Uh, for some game styles with deep, deep character immersion where you actually become your character and so on, maybe that's not good. Mm. To, to like break the illusion of the game to discuss mm. thing out of the game but uh, for most games I, I like doing that if I'm not comfortable or if someone seems to be out of it somehow uh, well let's stop the game pause resolve everything that uh, seems to be the problem and then we get back into the game with new energy and everyone is on board and we're having much more fun right fair enough so how do you prepare for a game session uh and I'm running this game, I suppose. Yeah, well, we'll go from both perspectives, actually. Yeah, whichever, <laughs> whichever one you'd like to do first, because some people put in a lot of, even when they're a player, they put in a lot of time figuring yeah. out backstory and writing to the GM and, and stuff like that about character um, things. So so we'll go with the GM first, and we'll try players. Uh, if I'm playing a one-shot uh, GM-less game or a prepared game, I don't do much at all. Mm-hmm. I have a bunch of... Uh, uh, binders with prepared fun 
oh, all right, we have five people, uh, we need to have four hours. Well, we'll play this game. Mm -hmm. And I have to prepare because I did that years ago. So everything is ready. Right. Uh, if we're playing a standing campaign, I fuss about it for for weeks. I have a, a phone with a proper keypad, QRT style, so I can actually write texts on my phone and everywhere. I'm making little notes and writing down ideas and thinking about it and preparing about it and finding the right music to put in that scene and everything. Mm. And then people come and for three hours I just, well, stuff my story down their necks. <laughs> <laughs> now you said music. Do you use music while you're running a game? Uh, if I'm running a prepared uh, campaign kind mm. of game. If I'm running a one-shot, I don't use music. I, I prefer to have a strong focus on, on what's at the table right now. Right. If we're playing a campaign, I like to use the same music throughout the whole campaign so I can establish the fighty music and the love music and the interesting music and uh, some music that starts the session. So when I play that, after a while, the players are conditioned that when they hear the music, they say, oh, the game is starting, and they go silent, and they mm. uh, prepare, and, and they focus, and then it becomes sort of a ritual that starts the game. Right. Same thing for ending the game. I want an end music that I play when, when the session is ending, so right. they can leave the fantasy world and come back to. Right. Now, you said that you had... Um romantic music um the perception that uh, that sweden is uh is very uh, sex discussion of sex is very open and i wonder if that is true um whether that translates to role playing because i've never been in a role playing a session where where sex has taken place it might have taken place off camera so to speak but is that something that is more um is that something that is addressed more readily in uh, games from your experience? If you want games that actually address sex as such, I think you'll have to look at American games. Uh, maybe uh, Apocalypse World. Sure. Uh, if you're just looking for uh, sexual situations happening in-game while you're playing, not necessarily with the support of the rules or the material. Sure. Uh, I don't think it's very rare in Sweden. Of course, I get a rather narrow view because I, I only know the games I've played. Of course. And some that I've read actual play reports. But uh, I don't think... Uh, I, I follow discussions on Google Plus about... Uh, well, they had sex on... Not sex on the table, but there was sex in the story. And... <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, um, uh, how upset some people become. Oh, right. And I don't, I, I never see Swedish gamers becoming upset because that was part of the story. Right. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there are people who, who become upset when uh, sexual themes come into play. Sure. Uh, but I've never experienced yeah, it. Yeah, sure. Just speaking in generalities, yeah, I think that's, um, that there is some sort of, uh, it does spill over uh, a little bit. Um, so what about if you're going to be a player, how would you prepare for a game session? Um, I'll take my dice and I'll take my pen 
and I hope that the GM has my character sheet because I would have lost it. <laughs> and then I make sure that I'm uh, there in time for the session. Right. right I, I might bring some candy. <laughs> uh, I, I used to uh, uh, do lots of stuff outside the game, write a chronicle or uh, write elaborate backstories for my characters and so on. But uh, last few years, I haven't found the time to do that. Right. Maybe I'd like to return there. I don't know. But uh, these days, well, I'm, I'm there on time. And that's my contribution to it. <laughs> Okay, so is there any place in gaming for fudging dice rolls as a GM? Yes. Uh, well, it depends. Sure. Uh, we are there to have fun, of course. Mm -hmm. If uh, the players have the expectation that there will not be any fudging, we are playing straight, mm -hmm. uh, then there won't be any fudging. Sure. Uh, because that is our definition of fun for this game. Sure. Uh, if uh, the players, if I'm running a convention game and they are, have signed up, or we want four hours of fun, entertain us, please. Yes. Uh, I will do whatever it takes to make sure they have four hours of good fun. Yes. Even fudge dice rolls. Yes. Uh, if they come to enjoy the story. And I will not stop them because of a bad die roll. Yes. Yeah, that's uh yeah, I hadn't really considered it from that perspective before, but that's very perceptive of you, Wilhelm. Yeah, that that idea sort of goes a little bit back to what we're talking about, um, you know, having trust for the players at the table and assuming that the things that seem kind of um crappy on the face of it, actually there's a there's a bigger picture available. But in a convention setting you don't have that, do you? You've got to you've got to make sure that you get the payoff for everything within that that short time frame. And if I have the time, I, I'd like to sit down with the players before we actually start the convention game and say, all right, welcome to my table. My name is Wilhelm. Today we are playing this game. Mm -hmm. And this game is built on a foundation of, of these principles. Mm -hmm. uh, so they know what they're getting into because I often run strange games that they never heard about. Sure. Uh, and everything is new to them. And I'd like to give them something to cling on to, uh, a foundation of sorts before play, so they can contribute in a meaningful way. Mm. Absolutely. So what's the best and or most inspiring uh, film for you for role-playing or, or, or TV show for, for role-playing? It doesn't have to be about role-playing, but something you watched and went, wow, that's really cool. I'd like to play in a game where that happens right now. Um, there's an old Sean Connery movie called Outland. Right. Have you seen that? Uh, I, um, I don't think I have, but I know the film you're talking about. Yeah. Um, I, I love the aesthetics in that movie. I, I'd love to, to run a game that looked like that. Right. And it uh, has been haunting me since I saw the movie when it first came. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I want to run the game. Uh, and it, it, uh, the pursuit of that game session that is Outland, mm -hmm. it drives uh, I haven't managed. Uh, I've been playing for over 20 years, and I'm still not there. But uh, it, it beckons to me. Uh, there is something there. I want to play it. Mm -hmm. uh, inspires me. All right. Good. So who's your favorite villain and why? Um, 
there's a series of comic books by Christopher Miller. Right. Uh, I think they're called Burning Empires. Uh, there's a role-playing game called Burning Empires, at least. Yes. Uh, that was based. And there are mind-controlling worms. Oh, right, yes. That. And those worms are the best villains ever. <laughs> ever. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I I love the comic books. Right. Uh, love them, love them, love them. And uh, those villains, uh, these mind-controlling worms that slowly are taking over humanity and using the human bodies as, uh, well, just shells because they need bodies. Mm. Uh, those are excellent because they can convert... Uh, someone you love into like a worm creature then right and they will look the same and maybe they act the same but they are not the same they are something else right uh, sort of like the zombie thing but you can see on a zombie it's different yes it acts differently yes uh, but these valen uh, worm creatures mm. maybe you don't know they could there's this uh, paranoia breeding in the background, and that's a very good villain. Oh, yeah. I like them a lot. Yeah, the, I think the loss of self is the biggest fear that anybody can uh, that anybody can have. You know, like, anything happening to your body can be, can be terrifying, I think, but a larger, more pervasive, and certainly um, a fear that has more impact is the loss of self. Um, and and that's what the Valen represent, right? Like that that yeah. loss of, of who you are, and, and also like you say, the loss of of the people that you love. So well played there again, Wilhelm. You're uh, you're betting a, a thousand now. So if you could <laughs> if you could become a character in a role playing game, uh, what would it be? And and that doesn't mean like you get to roll up a character in a role playing game and play the game because you could do that anyway. I mean, like if you could actually suddenly become yeah. a person in a role playing game, what person would it be in, and or at least what character would it be in, and what world would you be living in? Um, the problem with most role-playing games is that uh, they're pretty horrible places, actually. Mm. People die all over, and there's conflict and and problems, and uh, it doesn't always end well, and so on. So I'd rather not be a character in any role-playing game. <laughs> but if I have to, you do. I would be a witch in Witch Quest. Right. Uh, Witch Quest is a Japanese role-playing game about uh, 13-year-old witches and their cats. <laughs> and they go on happy adventures, and it always has a happy ending. And they may, the problems are, well, there's no evil people, just misunderstood people. And once you resolve the misunderstandings, everything is fine. So if I had to play a character in a role-playing game, I'd like to be a witch in Witch Quest, please. <laughs> Alrighty. So, do you have any dice superstitions? No, none whatsoever. I I, I don't. Uh, I'll use any dice. And have you mis- made the mistake of touching somebody else's dice who is superstitious? Uh, I've touched other people's dice when I needed some dice, and they said, uh, "No, you can't use these dice. You have to borrow these dice instead." So maybe I've done that. <laughs> So have you seen any really weird dice superstitions? Uh, I played uh, with a guy who came from a group uh, where they kept their dice in their mouths. 
so no one would touch them. <laughs> so they would lose that. I, I take it they didn't have much player uh, impact on the story because they both were war for because they had, uh, they the lights in their mouths. Well, like, um, wow, that's real. That's wow. Um, <laughs> so uh, what's your role-playing elevator pitch, including your uh, go-to example of play? Uh, like if I'm explaining what role-playing game yeah, is. Yeah, so some, or... somebody comes to, to you and says, hi, Wilhelm, um, what are you doing tonight? You say, I'm going role-playing. And they say to you, role-playing, what's that? And then you say... Um, it's like an audio drama oh. uh, where someone stole everything but the first five pages in the script you uh, have to live with that wow that's another great explanation i should have uh, i should have maybe you should be hosting the show and i should be answering the questions um but of course uh, that don't that's only valid for some kinds of games sure if, if we take our traditional uh, old school dungeons and dragons game that mm-hmm. we play every once in a while that's not a very fitting description of that game at all because it doesn't play like that. Uh, but if I were to explain that in an elevator pitch way, they wouldn't understand. Right. Or, uh, it would just seem strange. Uh, so I have decided that I will narrow my explanation to something that they can actually understand and is true for some games. Some right. games that I play, Dota Severona plays like that. Right. Uh, and if they, then they say, oh, that's very interesting. Tell me more. Right. I can well go on further and say, well, uh, of course, that's only true for some games. There are some games that work in this way and that way and so on. But I start with the uh, audio drama, right? And do you ever find yourself and do you like do you find yourself doing that a lot? Uh, every once in a while, um, I I don't hide that I'm a gamer. Sure. Uh, and if people are interested. Uh, I, I love to talk about it. I don't go these days shoving gaming down their throats. I did mm-hmm. that when I was younger. Everyone should be a gamer, and I was the one to to tell them how. And, <laughs> uh, I've uh, eased up a bit on that. Right. And do you ever find yourself not describing it in case somebody asks to play with you? No. Maybe I have good friends uh, or, or good acquaintances, but I like... I like demonstrating games. I right. go to conventions specifically to to show people new games. Mm. If I find someone who wants to play a game and I can right away see that our play styles will not match, will, will not be compatible in any way, I usually know someone who is compatible and I can like make the connection somewhere else. Because, well, as I said, we have lots of gamers around here. Sure, absolutely. So, um, is there anything coming out that you're looking forward to? Uh, we played Sagas of the Icelanders uh, a week ago, mm-hmm. and it seems very nice. I'm actually absolutely looking forward to having that uh, in a full version. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a good setting and. Uh, the mechanics seem to work mm-hmm. uh, since we got was um, a playtest. It wasn't the full game, but uh, we were using a playtest version. Right. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that come out. Right. Okay. So for all the marbles then, Wilhelm, 
Um, adding up to 100, um, assign points to reflect the relative importance of system, GM, and players. And you could lump GM and players in together if you want, or you can maybe tackle this from two different angles. Oh, this is uh, this is so hard. <laughs> well, if you have bad players, they will not be saved by uh, an excellent system. Right. But excellent players can do anything with a bad system. So I uh, maybe uh, 75% the people and 25 the system. Ladies and gentlemen, Wilhelm Persson. That's it for episode 49 of Penny Red. For any questions or comments arising from the show, daniel at hazardgaming.com. So until next week, keep talking the walk.